0: We've got one young lady talking about disabilities who has multiple sclerosis. She's very intelligent. She's really, really keen to learn, wants to learn, wants to be a teacher herself. This is Kate. She's a learning support teacher from a school we don't want to identify. So we're going to call it Gowana High. And she, at the moment, is struggling with the heat and the lack of aircon. So we have to send her to the library on really hot days. There are also no handrails in and around the school in certain areas, which we really need to put in for her to be able to access all the areas. And she was recently taken out of a a classroom and put somewhere else to make ease of access rather than putting handrails in. And it kind of irks when you can see all the painting and the mobile bench seats being put in around a garden at the front of the school, and yet we can't have handrails for a student that desperately needs them.
1: I mean, this is editorialising a lot.
2: This is Miles. He did a lot of the interviews in this series, so you'll hear
0: his voice a lot.
1: But the facade looks beautiful. It does. Is that, like, <laughs> purposeful?
0: Yes. Yeah, it's the public face of the school, whereas behind the scenes there's quite often chaos.
3: You're listening to Uniform, a new season of All Things Equal, where we'll be diving headfirst into the education system. I'm Verity Firth, and I'm the Executive Director of the Centre for Social Justice and Inclusion at the University of Technology, Sydney. But in a formal life, I was the Minister for Education in New South Wales. This episode starts at the beginning. The Difficult Process of Choosing a School. Our producer, Nina Koppel has the story.
2: But before we begin, this is your invitation to join in the discussion. You can reach us using the hashtag AllThingsEqual. So share your thoughts, ideas and
4: questions about the episode starting now. So probably, you know, our parents' generation, certainly my generation and older generation's Most people would just send their kids to the local public school. This is Christina Ho
2: from UTS, and her research looks at diversity and equality in Australian schools,
4: as well as how our schooling system has changed over time. You know, like there'd be a school that you could potentially walk to and everyone you knew was going there. You didn't have a lot of choice unless, of, of course, your parents had money to send you to a private school. But that sort of mentality's really changed now. Christina says there used to be
2: a school zone rule, which meant if you were going public, you actually had to send your kids to the local public school. But this rule relaxed over time and the
3: options available to people increased. Australia has a huge amount of school choice compared to other OECD nations. And this is something a lot of Australians don't understand, Right. In Australia, 34% of our students go to non-government schools. Now, the OECD average is 14%, and that average is in fact forced higher
4: by us. And all this choice has an impact on parents. You end up having this anxiety, really, about well what school is the best for my child. And once you do start looking around, you might see that there are these amazing private schools. They have swimming pools. You know, facilities. Theatres. Ovals. You know, all this sort of stuff. Butterfly houses, you know, turtle ponds, all sorts of things. So just sending your kid to the local public school is almost seen as negligent parenting in some, especially among middle-class communities. You have to do a lot of research. You have to go to every orientation night, you have to go to you know, every school principal interview, you have to look on the My School website, check out the NAPLAN results, look at the cohorts of every school, stand outside the school gate looking at the kind of behaviour that you can see. And then you make a choice. So people are going uh, school shopping, essentially. And what's a shopping trip without a shopping list? Item one,
2: good academic results.
4: With the introduction of NAPLAN, the standardized testing that all kids now do throughout primary and high school, we have these results that are on the My School website that increasingly parents are looking at when they're choosing schools. And it's very easy to compare, you know, schools based on how well the students are doing in NAPLAN. You can look up Gowana
2: High, for example, that school we were talking about right at the beginning of the episode. And what comes up for them when you compare their results to the rest of Australia is a whole lot of red, indicating they're either below or significantly below national averages.
0: NAPLAN data, unfortunately, has been used as a kind of like school measurement, which is not what it was meant for in the first place. This is Kate again, a learning support teacher from Gowana High. It's meant to be a diagnostic tool for teachers to use to target areas of need, and to target areas of you know, pitching your teaching to redress those issues. However, it's just become a diagnostic tool to see you know, which school has the better NAPLAN results than another. And that, again, helps parents to vote with their feet.
1: So instead of being like, you know, a measurement, it's like a sword.
0: It is, yeah. So it's like a double-edged sword because the people that don't really understand NAPLAN don't see any benefit to it. So quite often the students aren't here and the parents will keep them away if NAPLAN is going ahead.
2: But there's also a risk parents won't understand how to best use the NAPLAN data.
3: So rather than look at value-add they'll look at raw results or rather than looking at the way the school and its community works together, they'll look simply at Year 5 math scores. And so what then is value added? So value added you get by having baseline data, which is you're able to say, here is the student that came into my school, this is where they were at, and look at the growth they've had since being here. On the MySchool website, you can see students'
2: improvement in their NAPLAN scores between Year 7 and Year 9. So often what
3: you'll get in low SES schools... Schools with a low socioeconomic status. In particular, in good low SES schools, is that you'll get really great value-added data because what'll happen is they'll come in at a certain level and the teachers and the school really will mean that they pick up their results... Often what's very interesting is schools with a higher SES status don't have much value add. So they come in at a certain high level, usually because of their socioeconomic status and class, and they stick there. Doesn't mean they're not getting good results, but the school itself isn't necessarily value adding. So academic results
2: can be tricky to tick off the shopping list. But there are other things parents take into consideration. Item number two on the shopping list, resources. From its facade, Gowana High looks bright, fresh and new.
0: But behind the scenes, It's a decrepit 1950s belt, which is falling apart with rotting fascia boards, leaky roofs, sash windows that don't open, ceiling fans that don't work, and no air conditioning. Blinds that kind of keep out the heat, however, on 30-odd day degrees, they will end up just being like roasting boxes for both staff and students. The smell of the plumbing is disgusting. It's rotten, drained smell throughout the back half of the school. As opposed to the Catholic school down the road. Which has uh, air conditioning in classrooms. They have state-of-the-art science lab. They have a pool. They have decent sporting equipment, whereas we have stuff that's quite often falling apart <laughs> and we're relying on sort of vouchers and things like that and donations from staff of tennis rackets, that sort of thing. And so, Gowana High has limited resources, but they also have students with extra needs. So we have a lot of refugee students here at the school. A lot of them come from the IC uh, unit, which is the intensive English program that they do before they get to us. Kate says there are also students at Gowana High who have challenging home lives. They're quite often the carer for a parent because the parent happens to be an addict of some sort or another or there is a lot of uh, domestic violence within the household quite often. Very little food and what food there is tends to be junk food. So high sugar intake and low protein. So a lot of them aren't as physically fit as they should be either. Mm. Dirty at times. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Are there people from the local area who might be a little bit more well-off who decide to not go to this high school because of those reasons?
4: Yeah. And this becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because once a school is seen as a school that everyone's trying to avoid, this is Christina again from UTS then obviously if you can avoid it, you will. Then enrollment figures drop. And once your enrollment numbers drop, you start to lose resources, because obviously if schools are funded based on how many kids are there. Losing resources can mean losing staff. And that will then further reinforce the perception that it's a de- declining school. So it is a real vicious cycle there. So your choice of school doesn't just impact your child. But not everyone gets to make these sorts of choices. A lot of the research that's been done on this is in absolute agreement that it is the the middle class families that are able to do it.
2: If you're under some financial
4: pressures, shopping for schools probably isn't at the top of your priority list. They may be working a couple of jobs a week, they don't have time to drive their kids across town to school. It's a matter of necessity, you know, the kids just go to the local school and it's not something that they invest a huge amount of time thinking about. So when we're talking about giving parents choice, actually not everyone gets to choose. And this is where it gets political, because while those with the power to choose can take their kids to a private school, taxpayer money funds all schools private schools have been getting a lot more funding, you know, disproportionate amounts of funding, which means that the gap between public and private schools has been growing ever larger. And here is the quintessential
3: question of Australian education funding politics. Australia does provide support for the non-government school sector in a way that other countries don't. Now, the threshold question is whether or not the public purse should be funding their activities at all. These schools are, in the main, well-funded already through contributions from parents. One of the real issues we've got is that the federal government, which of course is the arm of government that has the most money, primarily looks after the funding of non-government or private schools. And the state government, which is the arm of government that isn't even allowed to charge income tax is the arm of government that looks after government schools.
2: So for parents with money to spend on education, private schools can look like a pretty good option. But the school shopping list doesn't end here.
3: Item three is coming up soon. I'm Verity Firth and you're listening to All Things Equal. We want you to join the conversation with your thoughts, questions and experiences using the hashtag All Things Equal. All right, on with the show.
2: OK, my name is Leslie Van Grosen. Leslie's another teacher from another school, but we don't want to identify it either, so we're going to call it Lagoon High. I've been here for about eight years. Like Gowana High... Lagoon High is considered to be low
5: SES or to have
2: low socioeconomic status.
5: And I quite like it here, believe it or not. I actually do quite like but I like wherever I go. So maybe I'm one of those silly teachers. I don't know.
2: Lagoon High is in an area that historically
5: has been considered pretty rough. You know, the rumours were you don't come in because it's full of druggies, people are selling stuff, and all sorts of weird and wonderful things you got told. But Leslie says she's seen the neighbourhood transform over time. So I think the area's been cleaned up a lot. You know, that's my perception. I know the perception of other people is don't go there. You know. You'll get stabbed in the back or something like that.
1: But and that narrative,
5: that narrative persists in the is, school? Uh, it persists out of school and I think it, sometimes it makes prospective parents of students who are in our area not to send their kid to this school because they think it's you know, a bit of a rough school, a bit of a, oh, you know, oh, all the deadbeats are there, but that's not the case. We're highly academic, we do have a lot of successes at our school, and we do do very well in most of the things that we do.
2: But the school's bad reputation remains, and Leslie has a theory
5: as to why. Some of our clientele are racist, for the want of a better word. And I think that perception, and I, I mean, perception we're full of Asians, and the fact that you know we're in a bit of a drug den of iniquity, uh, two sort of strikes against us. Which brings us to
2: another item on the school shopping list.
4: Yes, academic results are important. Resources are important to parents too, but maybe just as important, if not more important. And this is number three on the list. Uh, Who are your peers? This is Christina again from UTS. You know, I've interviewed people who've <laughs> talked about how they've seen parents, you know, literally standing outside the school gate and sort of shaking their heads going, oh, you know, look at those uniforms, you know, like they're really rough, those kids and they're, you know, they're sort of yahooing around the playground and they're swearing and I don't want my kids to be in a school like that. When you go to the my School website, that resource we were talking about before, which
2: shows schools now plan results. It doesn't just provide academic information. If you search Goanna High, for example, you can see that 82% of their students have a first language other than English, and 2% of their students are
4: Indigenous. So, I mean, this is obviously very sensitive, and no one will come out and say that, well, I'm not sending my kids to wear all those Lebanese kids. I mean, you know, they won't say that in public, because that doesn't sound right. So instead, people talk in euphemisms. The kids that that look rough or, you know, worries about children not having the right levels of literacy, you know, that might hold my child back. So there's this backlash against kids who are perceived as disadvantaged. But also the kids who are perceived as high achievers, who are almost seen as like, well, they're too successful now. And I don't want my kids to be in that environment because that'll obviously be a very high pressured kind of hothouse environment full of tiger mothers. And, you know, we don't want to be part of that either. So there's a lot of layers of um, who you should be avoiding, you know, when you're making these kinds of decisions.
2: Decisions which can draw imaginary lines straight through communities next high school over
5: it has a slightly better name even though it's only sort of over the railway track sort of thing this is leslie again a teacher from lagoon high so you know there, there isn't a great deal of difference except they're just over the track we're on we're on the wrong side of the tracks so they're on the right side of the tracks
2: Two schools in the same area with different
4: reputations. This is not a phenomenon unique to Lagoon High. Well, we did this very local study in one suburb because we wanted to track how school choice is actually leading to segregation and polarisation, even in just one suburb in Sydney. And so these two schools, you can walk between them in 10 minutes. But what we found is that one school was seen as a desirable school and one school was the poor cousin school. We would actually see like we were doing observation of the area, kids would literally walk past the poor cousin's school to get to the more desirable school. You know, like they were literally bypassing their local school to get to the other school. And this is reflected in the school's demographics. One of the schools was a lot more advantaged. We had a lot more kids who came from um, families in the top socioeconomic advantage quarter, whereas in the other school, uh, it was much more disadvantaged. And while the advantaged school
2: was full of mainly Anglo-Australians... The less desirable school was much more
4: culturally diverse, full of new migrants, refugees and Indigenous students. These two schools are, you know, they're in exactly the same suburb. Their communities are almost identical. And yet because of the kind of, you know, that self-fulfilling prophecy where you start to have this avoidance of one school, that just perpetuates the polarisation.
1: Do you think that this, you know, social and ethnic segregation in schools will lead to bigger social ethnic segregation in our our society? Do you think Sydney will end up looking like the school system?
4: Well, I I think increasingly there's a risk of that happening and I was quite shocked actually that even in middle class areas, Anglo-Australian middle class parents are, you know, tending to go towards private and avoiding public schools. So, you know, in the eastern suburbs and North Shore... That's the eastern suburbs and North Shore of Sydney. The government schools, on average, have more than twice as many migrant kids as non-government schools. So, if you want some stats... Yeah, um, yeah. On the North Shore, in private schools, only 16% of kids come from a language background other than English. 16%. You know, so the North Shore is, you know, a pretty multicultural place. But in the private schools, only a tiny minority come from migrant backgrounds, whereas in the public schools, it's more than double that. It's 34%. So more than a third of kids are coming from migrant backgrounds. And these are all schools that are doing really well. You know, like there are no schools on the North Shore that are failing. (laughs) And yet you see this sort of ethnic polarisation. But as Verity will tell you, this experience isn't unique to Sydney
3: or even Australia. All of these issues are faced by every school system. So even though at the top of the show, we talked about the enormous choice that Australia has, the fact that our non-government sector is so much more, you know, great than other countries. When you go to other countries who don't have the giant non-government sector, take the US, for example, and think, oh, well, they've got a united public sector, this must be working well. Well, of course, it doesn't really work either. And the reason why the US system doesn't work well is that the funding model in the US is very locally based. So if you live in a local area that's rich, you have a fantastic local school that everyone goes to. And if you live in a local area that's poor, you have a pretty you know downtrodden local school that everyone goes to. Something that Mira Levinson, who's a Harvard academic, has talked about in terms of global education systems across the world, she writes about elite capture. And what she says is, when parents have resources, when they're wealthy, they will segregate their children. They will find a way. They will avoid the local school. They will go around boundaries. Or what happens in the US is they'll redistrict boundaries so the, the black kids don't go to the white kids' school. And she says, it's very hard to get away from that because parents will always segregate their kids.
2: Verity, you were in government when the MySchool website came into effect and that's the website we've been talking about a bit in this episode, both its potential as a tool and its problems as a resource. But what what was that like for you as Education Minister when that came into effect? It was
3: extremely controversial and even today I look back at that time and and wonder and hope that we did the right thing. The interesting thing was there was a very strong argument from some sectors saying that this data that you have that actually shows the underperformance of Indigenous students and low SES students, you need to make that data public because without the public pressure of that data being available, nothing will ever change. And then at the same time, you had an equally passionate community saying, you will stigmatise people by putting out this data. And I still sit in a sort of uncomfortable unknowing about what's the right thing to do. So whilst we provided sort of contextual data because we thought that that would make the data more real and more actually understandable, what Christina was saying is that people do look at the physical characteristics of the students in a school and then still self-segregate which is something I do find very depressing.
4: So, you know, these are tomorrow's leaders, you know, people that are going to these schools in middle-class areas. And if they're, if they're sort of only used to dealing with people who are like themselves, then, you know, that's going to have wider social implications when they grow up. Because there are some things that money can't buy.
5: In the big bad world out there, past school, You mix with all kinds of people. Some people are very nice, some people are not so nice. Some people who are very rich and very nasty. Some people who are very poor and very nice. And how do we ever get along with each other if we don't get exposed to
4: different races, different beliefs? Education is not a commodity. We should be thinking of schools as a community hub. Right, where you go to your local school to be with everyone else who's in your community.
2: So as long as we focus on our shopping lists, prioritise resources, grades, and an ideal curated peer group, we're going to miss a
0: pretty important part of the story. Quite often it's out of teachers' pockets that we actually are providing that. A story about dedicated teachers And I quite like it here, believe it or not. So maybe
5: I'm one of those silly teachers.
0: And students excited to learn. There's been a couple of the uh, girls that I've taught that have gone on to actually go and study law, one's doing family law, because of the violence in her background. So, you know, those are the stories that need to be told and those are the stories that, you know, help us to make it through the weeks, (laughs) basically.
3: Next time on All Things Equal, we tell those stories. And meet some kids who'll make you question what it really takes to get a good education.
0: I'm vicious and I, I don't know, I want to reach the stars.
3: You've been listening to All Things Equal. A collaboration between the Centre for Social Justice and Inclusion at the University of Technology, Sydney, and 2SER 107.3. This podcast is produced by Miles Herbert, Ollie Henderson and Nina Kopel. Marketing and communications by Olivia Stanley. And a big thanks to Laura Oxley from the Centre. This podcast was made on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose elders have been telling stories here since time immemorial. If you like the show, don't forget to hit subscribe and maybe give us a review so that other people can find us. Stay in the loop by finding us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm your host, Verity Firth. Thanks for listening.